I'd like to welcome you back for the third paper uh, of the afternoon, which will be delivered to us by Professor Carol Ackman, um, who is a named professor at, of art at Williams College in Massachusetts, where she teaches in their very prestigious uh, graduate program in art history. Uh, her written work focuses on the body. Her publications include the book Angres Eroticized Bodies, Retracing the Serpentine Line, as well as the essay Barbie Meets Bouguereau, Constructing an Ideal Body for the Late 20th Century. And because we're in this kind of high-tech mode, I should tell you that there is a podcast of her most recent work on Barbie uh, that was done for The Economist magazine. So you can look that up. Um, Perhaps, only perhaps, uh, more pertinent to our themes today um, uh, is another book of hers, Sarah Bernhardt's The Art of High Drama, which is both uh, it's a catalog for an exhibition uh, and was co-edited with Ken Silver. She is currently at work on two projects, The Invention of the Female Nude and Sarah Bernhardt's Handkerchief. The first explores how the modern nude came to be understood as female, positing an important connection between the female body and colonialism under the Napoleonic Empire um, and enduring until the present day. Her second tells the story of a handkerchief that Sarah Bernhardt passed on to another great lady of the American theater and then its transmission from Helen Hayes to Julie Harris to Cherry Jones, becoming both a token of loss and a passing on, a kind of reflection on the way that theater depends on great performers to stay alive. Today, she, uh, her talk is entitled, She's Going to Sell, Sarah Bernhardt and Warhol's 10 Portraits of Jews. Carol? Thank you very much, Chris. They're going to sell, Warhol wrote of the prints of 10 portraits of Jews in his diary one month before they were to be exhibited in 1980, and you see Bernhard and Freud. What did he mean? And what do I mean by the she's going to sell of my title? Selling means something quite particular to Warhol. It means that the work is a success, contributing to, rather than undercutting, its status as art. As Warhol himself put it, I started as a commercial artist, and I want to finish as a business artist. Being good in business is the most fascinating kind of art. If I have chosen Warhol's 10 portraits of Jews of the 20th century as a template through which to examine Bernhardt, superstar of the 19th. It is because selling, business, is linked in this body of work to Jews and to a notion of celebrity tied to reproduction. Warhol's critics, like Bernhardt's, revile the artist's crass opportunism, excuse me, opportunism and lust for money and publicity. We might start by asking why. What is at stake in these artists' success? Bernhardt's persona and career, and Warhol's too, are perceived as attacks against elitist culture and against the traditional hierarchies of gender, class, sexuality, and ethnicity that support it. Detractors overlook the democratic impulse that animates each of them in favor of its self-serving motor, bigger buzz, more people, better sales. Critical ire, in fact, is reserved specifically for the ways these artists submit traditional art forms to the dual logic of mass culture and mechanical reproduction. 
Jewishness as one of a, a number of possible irritants intensifies the perceived decline in culture represented by such popularization. The first part of my paper is about branding. Bernhardt, like Warhol, can be said to have established a one-person enterprise, a kind of Sarah Bernhardt Inc. that perfectly simulated new models of industrial mass production and popular entertainment. The term branding is something easily understood in the case of Warhol, but perhaps less familiar in Bernhardt's. Therefore, I want to begin with Warhol's 10 Portraits of Jews and the portrait of Bernhardt within it before turning to Bernhardt's brand, first as she and her coll collaborators established it, and second, as it was reconfigured together with her Jewishness by caricaturists and writers. The Warhol brand. The idea for the 10 portraits, which Warhol referred to as Jewish geniuses, the famous Jews, the 10 Jews, and the 10 most famous Jews, came from his uh, friend and print dealer, Ronald Feldman, who wrote the list of almost 100 names that were at one point under consideration. Checks appear near the names of seven of the subjects chosen, including Bernhardt. Others like Chaplin, who was not Jewish, or Dylan, who became a born-again Christian, or Marx, who died in 1883, were eliminated. However, Bernhard, born to a Jewish mother, baptized as a young girl and a practicing Catholic throughout her life, somehow made the cut, as did Gertrude Stein, whose survival in France as a, as a Jew under Vichy has raised the specter of collaboration. To distinguish this series from the hundreds of commissioned portraits Warhol did from 1972 until his death in 1987, all of the subjects in 10 portraits of Jews were dead. Yet to their burnished afterlife, the Jewish geniuses could now add the Warhol brand. The artist made five paintings of each sitter, one of Bernhard on the left, uh, and several editions of 200 prints, one of Bernhard on the right. The prints were available at a discounted price before the opening. These multiples of 10 portraits joined a phalanx of images that were instantly recognizable as Warhols. Silk-screened, photo-based, garish in hue, headshot or bust length in format, and devoid of attributes. There is no question that Bernhardt, Einstein on the left, Kafka, Freud, Meyer on the right, the Marx brothers, Stein, Buber on the left, Gershwin, Kafka, and Brandeis on the right are Warhols. Yet without the, the designation 10 portraits of Jews of the 20th century or pre-existing knowledge of the sitters, we would not know they were Jews at all. Does the title of the series make them Jewish then? And the fact that there are only 10 make them famous? The Bernhardt brand. Bernhard, of course, didn't need Warhol to be a famous anything, let alone a famous Jew. She had invented some of his strategies for fame avant la lettre, and she already had her Warhol, a young Czech named Alphonse Mucha, 
who was under contract to advertise her theatrical roles from 1895 to 1900. The bust-length color lithograph made for a banquet honoring Bernhard in 1896 and based on the photograph from Reutlinger's studio shows her as Melisande in Edmond Rostand's La Princesse Montaigne, the faraway princess. Much as Warhol's portrait is based on a publicity photograph by Napoleon Cerrone from about 1880. In Mucha's image and the photographic source, she wears one of her most celebrated accessories, the diadem of jeweled lilies designed by Mucha and executed by René Lalique. Frontal, hieratic, and crowned, the actress looks every inch the Art Nouveau icon of a new Byzantium. In Warhol's portraits, it is the headshot and the aura celebrity confers that reign. But for all three, Bernhardt, Mucha, and Warhol, success, selling, depended on repetition and variation. The format for the internationally famous Steel Moucha was not the close-up favored by Warhol, but rather the full-length view used by the decorative pioneer of Art Nouveau in his first poster of the actress, Bernhard Egismonda on the right, from Victorien Sardou's play by that name. It served as the model for six others, and I'm showing you La Dame aux Camélias and Hamlet. The title of the play at the top the name of the theater where it was to be, to be performed at the bottom, and between them, the single ethereal figure of Bernhardt en rôle, framed in an alcove and holding a prop, a palm for Gismonda, who carries it in the Easter procession of the play's last act, a camellia as proffered by a deus ex machina hand for Marguerite Gautier, and I should say for Hamlet, uh, the spirit of Banquo behind, and the... Uh, reclining uh, dead figure of Ophelia below. With the flowing organic lines, dreamy color, and abstracted patterns, these posters defined the Steel Moucha at the onset of the anti-Semitic Dreyfus affair. In a sense, Bernhardt had already created her brand well before. In 1876, when the actress's fame first reached its zenith, Georges Clarin, the painter who would become a lifetime friend, immortalized her in an eight-foot-tall oil portrait, uh, which you see on the screen. This over-life-size, over-the-top picture establishes the visual tropes of Bernhardt's persona, the soon-to-be-fashionable thin body with its serpentine pose, the racy chic of her corsetless gowns inspired by lingerie, which contributed to the success of La Dame aux Camélias, also known as Camille, several years later the passionate love for birds and wild animals, feathers and furs, which here become attributes of the hypersexualized actress. Bernhardt's body, cinched into one of her signature form-fitting gowns, is a continuous spiral, starting at the head and accumulating twists and turns as it moves from her silhouette to the lengthy train of her dress to the svelte wolfhound, her canine double, curled at her feet. The sinuosity of the ensemble anticipates the whiplash curves of our nouveau creators, Muha and Lalique, whom she would patronize 20 years later and is also reminiscent of Valerie Steele's argument earlier in terms of fashion. 
The serpentine line became shorthand for Bernhardt's form. It was closely linked to the use of her body on stage. Her highly expressive style of acting revolutionized the performance of classical tragedy, much in the same way that Warhol's deadpan style reconfigured modernist concepts of originality and individual expression. And on the left is uh, Bernhardt in Theodora, 1884, and on the right, um, the film sequence of her death scene in the 1912 film, La Dame aux Camélias. At the same time, Bernhardt's and Warhol's art was instantly recognizable, inseparable from the brand they'd given it. During Bernhardt's acclaimed London tour of 1879, the critic Tom Taylor characterized her as by far the most feminine Phaedra he had ever seen, and you see her there as Phaedra on the left. Assessing a performance more than 10 years later, the writer Anatole France remarked, she did what no one had dared to do before. She acted with her entire body. She put into her roles not only her whole soul, all her mind and her physical grace, but also all her sexuality." End quote. If her luminous precursor, Rachel, on the right, was understood to be cerebral, and she's also in the role of Phaedra, a chaste and untouchable deity, Bernhardt was that brand new thing, a sex goddess. Once she understood what sold, she capitalized on it, grafting the quintessential fantasiec de femme fatale onto her roles, old and new. But it took Bernhardt's resignation in 1880 from the Comédie Française, the most prestigious theater in, France, in Europe, and the freedom to choose her own repertory as actor and manager of her own troupe during her first American tour the next year, for Bernhardt to take her physical and feminine style of acting and to make an empire of it. Among the plays she performed in the United States was a new one, Alfred Dumas' La Dame aux Camélias. Just on her first trip to the New World, she died 65 times as Marguerite Gautier. By the early 1880s, her talent for dying was so remarked on that a final death agony was practically mandatory. Rhapsodic critics remarked that she never died the same way twice. <laughs> For the next 40 years, she died nightly and sometimes twice a day, as Marguerite Gautier, Phaedra, Dona Sol in Hernani, Hamlet, Cleopatra, Tosca, and a host of others. Theodora on the left, Cleopatra on the right. One US reviewer likened her repertory, in which apart from wardrobe and makeup, the heroines were interchangeable, to Henry Ford's assembly line. Year after year, Victorien Sardou, who wrote eight melodramas, I might add, for Sarah Bernhardt, including Theodore and Cleopatra, turned out a new vehicle for her talent, as they turn out motor cars, all on the same lines, but each year's model a slight mechanical improvement on the last. No fan of the actress, George Bernard Shaw, remarked much less favorably on this reproductive model. Madame Bernard comes to us with a new play in which she kills somebody with any weapon from a hairpin to a hatchet, intones a great deal of dialogue as a sample of what is called the golden voice, 
to the great delight of our curates, who all produce more or less golden voices by exactly the same trick, goes through her well-known feat of tearing a passion to tatters at the end of the second or fourth act. This routine constitutes a permanent exhibition which is refurbished every year with fresh scenery, fresh dialogue, and a fresh author whilst remaining itself invariable. There is no question that Bernhardt achieved Warhol's goal of becoming a business artist and that she sold. Golden Marilyn and 200 Soup Cans, 1962. Bernhardt's career trajectory was rather different from Warhol's. From the beginning, he was an avatar, albeit a calculated one, of all things pop, which, was con which were considered vulgar and aesthetically degrading. He embraced the taint of commercialism from the get-go, immediately challenging the boundary between the making and marketing of art. He took traditional genres, portraiture, still life, and submitted them to an economy of mass culture and mechanical reproduction, consciously making silk screens, which reproduced the same image, slightly different each time, as his favorite technique. Bernhardt redefined tragedy to be sure, but she started at the top. Seen from the traditional hierarchical point of view, Bernhardt's career, from the legitimate theater where she would have done Phaedra, to the boulevard and the music hall, to vaudeville and film, is a step program of downward mobility. But from today's point of view, her incremental embrace of new forms of popular entertainment and new technologies looks prescient. How many can claim to have made a special trip to New Jersey to have their voice recorded by Thomas Alva Edison on their first American tour in 1881? One of nine, I might add, the last four of which were all billed as farewell American tours. <laughs> what other actor fomented rumor that she slept in a coffin and had herself photographed in a coffin when she was only 35 as a publicity stunt. She died at age 79. Who would be the first big name star to cross over from legitimate theater to vaudeville, as likely as persuading Rodin to make sand statuary in Atlantic City, as one critic put it? And who but Bernhardt would star in movies when they were at the bottom of the heap of popular entertainments. Uh, this is from her first uh, one-reeler, Jean Doré, from 1915. To be sure, the lure of vaudeville must have been at least in part financial. Bernhardt commanded the exorbitant fee of $7,000 per week, a sum twice paid that to any performer on the scene, and also greater than anyone made on the legitimate stage. The proceeds from the 1912 film version of Queen Elizabeth, starring Bernhardt, enabled Adolf Zukor to found Paramount Pictures. But the actress's decision to star in more popular forms of entertainment were also consistent with her desire to disseminate her image as broadly as possible for this and for the simple desire to work and thus be alive. She kept going. Warhol, anyone? And what of Jews? Publicists might well be cautious. 
Was it better to avoid Bernhardt's Jewishness or to refer to it, perhaps obliquely? In Mucha's poster for La Samaritaine, whose production coincided with the early years of the Dreyfus Affair, and Bernhardt, I might say, was definitely pro-Dreyfus, the Hebrew inscription Yahweh appears behind Bernhardt's head, while Shaddai, another Hebrew word for God, accompanies the inset figure below and to her right. As Fotin, the heroine of Rostand's play, Bernhardt turned her Semitic exoticism into an alluring attribute, playing to the public's appetite for beautiful Jewesses redeemed by their conversion to Christianity. Bernhardt, in the role of the Samaritan woman, adheres to a faith resembling pre-rabbinical Judaism. Almost Jewish, but not quite, Fotin is a sort of surrogate for Bernhardt and her equivocal religious identity. Marketing Jews, as Warhol was perceived to have done, drew fire from the critics in 1980 when Ten Portraits was first exhibited, Kafka on the left and the Marx Brothers on the right, especially in New York where they were shown at the Jewish Museum. This is usefully detailed by Richard Meyer in the catalog for the 2008 exhibition Warhol's Jews, Ten Portraits Reconsidered. In 1980, Carrie Rickey's review in Art Forum begins, Mr. Merchandising, Andy Warhol, was made an offer he couldn't refuse. How about a print portfolio of 10 famous Jews? A moral nightmare, but a marketing dream, Jewploitation, end quote. Hilton Kramer, then chief art critic for the New York Times, is predictably withering. To the many afflictions suffered by the Jewish people in the course of their long history, the new Andy Warhol show at the Jewish Museum cannot be said to make a significant addition. True, the show is vulgar, it reeks of commercialism, and its contribution to art is nil. The way it exploits its Jewish subjects without showing the slightest grasp of their significance is offensive or would be anyway, if the artist had not already treated so many non-Jewish subjects in the same tawdry manner. As a Jew who happened to be an entrepreneur and female, Bernhardt was no less scathingly attacked by the press. She and playwright Sardou, um, in the caricature Bernhardt's on the right, although admittedly it's a little hard to tell, were caricatured without mercy for their love of publicity, banging on instruments. Bernhardt, in fact, was among the early celebrity advertisers for a host of products, from face powder in the poster by Charest on the right to real estate in the Bronx. But more virulent yet were attacks that fused Jewishness with what was perceived to be aberrant behavior for respectable women. In the caricature by Cold Talk, Bernhardt is surrounded by a profusion of attributes relating to her careers as an actress, the mask of tragedy, the skull, and as part-time painter. She was actually a much better sculptor. The palette and brushes, the mall stick, and the pantsuit. What at first glance appears a benign homage to an attractive, accomplished celebrity is undercut by a prominent allusion to Bernhardt's supposed Jewish avarice. She stands on a carpet of gold coins and questionable mores. The skull is smoking a cigarette. 
Bernhardt was not the first actress to be denigrated as a Jew. Whether Jewish or not, actresses by the late 18th century were so much a part of public life that they were inevitable subjects for scandal mongers. But the sheer number of caricatures and their ignominiousness was only possible in an age of mass culture and anti-Semitism. Bernhardt's wispy figure transformed time and again into distinctively hybrid animate forms. Big beak bird, airborne insect, hoofed panther. Like Koltok's caricature, Alfred Le Petit's The Tart That Laid the Golden Eggs, shows Bernhardt in profile with recognizably Semitic features, including protruding nose and frizzy hair. Bernhardt's coiled torso with its abbreviated wings ends in chicken feet clad in black stockings, an allusion to prostitution. Under the watchful and approving eye of her playwright and collaborator Sardou, Bernhardt discharges from her flapping train a stream of golden eggs that collect in a group of already full baskets. This type of vocabulary haunts Bernhardt in the late 1870s and early 1880s. The mudslinging, anti-Semitic, and in every other way defiling biography, Les Mémoires de Sarah Barnum, of 1883, attributed to Marie Colombier, a disgruntled member of the actress's touring company, gives Bernhardt the surname of the incorrigible impresario who made the American careers of Jenny Lynn, the Swedish Nightingale, and Tom Thumb. Although Léon Adolphe Villette, who designed the cover, and Le Petit went on to become well-known anti-Semitic illustrators during the Dreyfus Affair, they did not portray Bernhardt at that time. One wonders why she suddenly found herself above the fray. At least part of the answer may lie in the fact that Bernhardt had become too useful as a symbol of France. To denigrate its greatest star was too high a price for the French to pay. In addition, after the early 1880s, she was frequently on tour abroad. If she was out of the spotlight in her homeland, she was its greatest sensation abroad. Bernhardt's Jewishness did not always breed virulent anti-Semitism. The emphasis on her profile and wavy hair also distinguishes idealized images of her, such as Jules Bastien Lepage's oil painting, in which the actress caresses a statue of Apollo, god of poetry, or even the early profile portrait by celebrity photographer Félix Nadar. As in Warhol's portraits, sometimes you just had to know she was Jewish. A decade before the Dreyfus Affair, Bernhardt became and would, and would be, remain, excuse me, the brand for France. Degeneracy and mass culture. Bernhardt's reputation, warts and all, was hard won, and so was Warhol's. Each of them used mass culture in a new way, not the least of which was as a strategy for success in a bourgeois capitalist world that with justification continues to buck at the challenges mass culture and mechanical reproduction pose for originality, aesthetic integrity, even humanism. But look what happens when we add Jews to the debate. The stereotypes that have been used to dehumanize them license accusations of every kind of deviancy imaginable in caricatures of Bernhardt. When the subjects are Jewish geniuses, and here's Gershwin on the right, 
and Warhol at an opening in 1980 at the Low Art Museum at the University of Miami. You see him standing in front of Sarah Bernhardt and Brandeis to the right. When the subjects are Jewish geniuses and the portraits, as is the case with many of Warhol's later works, are of more questionable quality than the ones that were already considered by some to be worthless, it is another art upstart, Andrew Warhola from Pittsburgh, an avowed homosexual who began his career um, as a commercial illustrator, who is the fall guy for his complicity in a moneyed culture that was not his by birth. What would happen if we thought about 10 portraits of Jews together with some of Warhol's other rarefied series, 13 Most Wanted Men, based on FBI mugshots from the 10 most wanted fugitive list. And the photograph actually shows the brief moment, and it was a moment, 1964 to 65, when those were exhibited on the New York State Pavilion building designed by Philip Johnson. And they were censored and um, spray painted over with silver paint. Or the portfolio of, an, of endangered species showing 10 animals in danger of extinction worldwide. I don't have time to discuss this, but I think it's a pretty rich topic. Bernhard too defied the odds. A Jew who converted to Catholicism, a sexualized being known for her promiscuity with women as well as men, a person blessed with superhuman energy, although often sickly, even on the verge of death, and an amputee for the last eight years of her life. Might we not say that part of the project shared by Bernhard and Warhol was to have the marginalized see themselves at the table? Bernhard and Warhol both had an instinctive understanding of mass media and mass marketing. Both were unlikely candidates to become celebrities on a global scale. Bernhardt's ability in particular to turn even the most negative publicity to her advantage had few rivals then and has few now. There is something instructive in the fact that a woman who was subject to constant disparagement could not only laugh in the face of her critics, but laugh all, to the, way, all the way to the bank. Earning money, being independent, having multiple careers made Bernhardt suspect from the start. Yet along with her loose sexuality and skewed religious affiliations, these transgressions of female propriety had the ironic effect of making her more rather than less appealing to a mass audience. Bernhardt embodied the contradictions of her age and made them exciting. Her ability to repeat and vary her distinctive yet imitable style of acting is an almost uncanny simulation of modern industrial production. Repetition meant both surefire and ongoing success. In fact, without the technologies afforded by mass production, photographs, posters, sound recordings, and movies, we might not remember Bernhardt at all. Warhol has immortalized the mass culture these new technologies and new popular entertainments have made possible. What they, Bernhard and Warhol, substitute for the unique work of art is, of course, the modern concept of celebrity, in which the name or brand is the guarantor of prestige. 
The need to claim Bernhardt as Jewish, as the exhibition Sarah Bernhardt, The Art of High Drama at the Jewish Museum in New York did for a large audience in 2005, or to think again in 2008 about Warhol's 10 portraits um, as Warhol's Jews, 10 portraits reconsidered also at the Jewish Museum did, is part of the necessary and necessarily ongoing process of reclamation. Its goal to keep alive minority identities which are in constant danger of being erased or reinscribed as degenerate. It is only in continuing to be mindful of how and why imagery is contentious that we can ensure that such identities are not sacrificed to a universal standard, supposedly untainted by money. And this is Warhol's $82 bills, front and back. Thank you. Got a question for Mary. How do you know that Sati's suit at the end was a kind of banal, ordinary suit? That's that's actually a really good question. Um, the he bought. We know that he bought the suit at a department store called La Belle Jardinière, and that he bought the same suit, not not like he did when he went on the seven suit binge, but he bought a similar suit year after year after year, um, and. Really, actually, yeah, but that's all I know about it, so that's, a, that's an interesting question. The uniformity of men's fashion, that the distinctions between a, a chic man's suit and an ordinary one are so hard to see, particularly from photographs. Mm -hmm. he, he did um, make a very big deal out of uh, the receipt of a smoking uh, jacket. At one point, um, Etienne de Beaumont um, bought it for him for an event, and so that was a tailored, very bespoke piece of, uh, of clothing. But I think the suit was just off the rack. Two quick questions, one to Barbara and one to Carol. Barbara, I was really pleased with the move to Hitchcock. What I expected was the move to Korngold, was the move to Die Tote Stadt, but of course Korngold then goes to Hollywood and writes film music, not for Vertigo. It would be too nice if it was for Vertigo. 
but it's it strikes me that that's one more thing to think about in terms of that transformation. Right. I, I, I'm just getting to Korngold. Um, I, oh, yeah. I just read the libretto on the plane here, quite frankly. Very cool. And, and it's interesting that what Korngold does with the, with the final scene um, is to turn it into a dream sequence. Exactly. So he strangles the wife, and it's terrible, terrible, does it with a braid, and then, he, not the, wife, the, the woman he thinks is the wife, and then wakes up, and there she is, having come back to return to gather some belongings she yeah. left in the house. So Dee realizes that, that whole final scene. Mm -hmm. But yes, yeah. Korngold is on my yeah. itinerary. And, and Carol, I mean, it, it strikes me that the next step is Shepherd Ferry and the politicization of that transformation. Um, and I was so struck with the new show in Boston, you know, this first big retrospective. Um, of the fact that, of course, he does Warhol. Yes. I mean, there's Shepard, Shepard Ferry doing Warhol, Warhol then do, I mean, it's, it's just, it don't, it don't stop, do it. No, it don't. <laughs> you know, no, it don't. And actually, I, I think that, you know, I, I don't know why I decided to, to do this paper. I mean, we never know why we do the papers we do until way after we do them. Um, but it, it must have been when I saw in 2008 uh, this show about Warhol's Ten Portraits of Jews Reconsidered, and it was only in doing the paper quite recently that I realized this could be huge. There's so much here, and of course you know that Warhol had to have idealized Bernhardt. I mean, this is, you know, it goes without saying. Um, and, um, yeah, I, um, I think what my response to your question, Sandra, would be this. I think Shepard Ferry might not have gotten the first prize had it not been for the Warhol reference, with no disrespect to Shepard Ferry. Um, one of my colleagues actually got second prize, so he didn't get to have his image on the cover of Time Magazine. Too bad. <laughs> and it's a fabulous portrait. So that is, a, in, in a way, an illustration of precisely this debacle, the mass culture debacle, the notion of recognition um, that um, is in some ways very, very satisfying, uh, this repetitive sort of paradigm. Uh, that enables recognition, which is the mass productive paradigm, of course. One, one tiny footnote, because you mentioned, of course, um, Bernard as amputee. Of course, Warhol has this bodged nose job in 53, trying to look less Jewish. And he becomes the kind of Michael Jackson of his own set, which is interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, of course you know about... I, 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 you, I, no, 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 I'm saying you know about plastic surgery since you've written about it. <laughs> I was reminded uh, when Dr. Spackman was talking about the um, the novel, uh, the Rodenbach novel, about his roots in symbolism and the Mallarmé poems about Lanique's in the mirror and uh, Mallarmé's 
um, I, I, an, a, perhaps an indirect allusion to Mallarmé and some of the other symbolist poets um, as much as uh, the, the photographs. I think it was very common in the editions of, um, I'll say, Sir Walter Scott at the time to have photographs too rather, that are not really very interesting in terms of illustration. So that was just a common thing that was done, I think, um, at the time. Um, so about Mallarmé, it's just, it's chock full of Mallarmé. I mean, the annotated edition can tell you exactly where every single thing is, and here's the senia, and it just everything that you would expect is there. It's absolutely, you know, richly intertextual. Um, I don't have the same impression that, that it was so common to, to include photographs. Um, it's interesting that a couple of years after uh, Rodenbach published this novel, there was an enquête um, um, in Paris, of course, because Rodenbach wasn't hanging out in Bruges when he was writing this. He was in Paris writing it, of course. Um, about the, the photographic novel, and they asked Mallarmé, and they asked Rachild, and they asked everybody, and they all said, oh, it's a terrible idea. I have nothing to do with it, including Rodenbach himself. So they were all very, very down on it, um, which is why it's so interesting to me that, I mean, it sounds to me as though the photographs really were added in a kind of, really just to beef up what was going to be a real short book. So it was a commercial motivation. So that's, that makes it all the more interesting to me that, that the memory should be described in such photographic terms, right? That that's the more interesting part to me, right? That that that, that technology has already been absorbed and and and, and had become a, a part of the psyche. Kind of like the early 19th century novels that came from my grandparents' personal library that have photographs from Sir Walter Scott and Rehoboth. Um, very detracting from the actual past. I mean, they might uh, and I might put in, in my new capacity as teaching visual culture in an English department, I've just discovered this and I'm anxious to share, um, that uh, The Marble Fawn, 1860, Nathaniel Hawthorne, was published in such a way that people could buy their own postcards from the publisher and decide which um, sites of Rome they would like to have accompany which Parts really? of the which parts of the text. So I, I guess I wondered yeah. about tourism. That's fabulous. I, I didn't know that. Uh, yeah. um, I wondered about because you know the way that that you said Bruges is sort of presented as this place outside modernity, which so it becomes a kind of primitive, a kind of you know place that people could go, which is such a sort of trope of the fantasy ecla. Do you have any thoughts about the way that uh, the photographs? work with this idea of a kind of uh, trip to the other side, whether, where that other side is either the sort of not modern or the dead? It's absolutely, I mean, it, it is a tourist trip to the not modern. Um, and, and again, what, what the, the knowledge that I have about the choice of the photographs comes from the editors and comes from Paul Edwards, who has a very, really important and informative essay. And, and these folks have gone to the image bank and looked at the photographs. Um, and the photographs that they chose, first of all, they, there, there are plenty of photographs you could have chosen of Bruges with its streets full of people, eliminated. Um, many of the photographs were photographs that had been postcards that had been taken 20 years before. So there was a real, I mean, a deliberate, very clear, intentional attempt to make, okay, this is a different, a different space and a different time. Um, just parenthetically, as I said to someone in the audience, the, 
the Daedalus English translation, which came out sometime, I think, in the early 90s, um, also has photographs. But um, they were taken by one of the translators who thought that it might be a good idea to update them. So if you read the English translation, you will not have exactly the same experience. I'm not trying to debunk what you had to say. I was a latecomer, so I only caught the end of it. And my sources are largely anecdotal and what I was able to glean from the didactic panels at the uh, Warhol Museum. But I was under the impression that his parents were what we call Karpatho-Rusin and that he was Byzantine Catholic. And so I'm curious as to how you come to the conclusions that you did. I didn't actually say anything about Warhol's religious beliefs. I mean, it's, it's well known that he's Catholic. He just happened to do this series called Ten Portraits of Jews, and it got skewered. question for Carol. I was, I was um, interested in Warhol's selection of Bernhardt as a figure of the 20th century, um, so, so the second part of his, his title. I mean, obviously she lived into the 20th century and, and had an important activity during World War I, but um, her heyday in sort of popular imagination is really the 1890s with the Mucha posters. So I wondered about that. I mean, is it a statement about her modernity or what, what m might there be a comment on her you know, 20th century-ness? in that. I wish I could give it some kind of weight, um, but knowing Warhol's practice, I mean, basically, Buber was in the series because he liked the source photograph, which resembled Moses. Um, and, and that, you know, that spoke to him in some way in terms of a, of a portfolio of 10 portraits of Jews. Uh, that, that seems to be the way that he worked, that, that he had to be captivated by the photograph on which he was going to base the print or the painting. Now, I could say, leaving Warhol aside, um, that it is kind of fascinating that, in fact, she's in a series um, of Jews of the 20th century because, of course, that's when she does film. <laughs> um, she does, in fact, in 1900, her very first film, which is a 45-second clip of her um, in Hamlet. She's playing Hamlet in a duel, in the duel. Um, and so I think, you know, in some way, perhaps Warhol might have known this, but I guess I have to say that knowing his practice, I can't really say that the historical um, trajectory of, his, of her career would have really been the thing that, that attracted him. Uh, we'll take a 
10 minute break maximum. We'll set up for the roundtable discussion and um, then we'll have Willa Silverman and Maria Trullo uh, facilitate the discussion with uh, the audience and with all the speakers of today. So we'll reconvene very shortly in 10 minutes maximum. Thank you.